This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders! Sorry for the technical glitch there. Let's get right back to the regularly scheduled program. Um, I want to talk about something I came across the other day that I think explains Black Lives Matter protesters and their motivations, their drive. I think it explains uh, college campus crybabies. And, and the outrage culture we have today, I think it explains Ryan Lochte and what he did in Rio and the, and the lies he told. Uh, I think this is a really meaningful lesson that, that, I, uh, that I heard the other day. So I want to play this clip. It's a couple minutes. Uh, it's Tony Robbins on the Tim Ferriss podcast. And Tim Ferriss asked Tony Robbins to tell any story of one memorable experience that he had hosting a seminar. And this is the story that Tony Robbins told. So it's, it's a couple minutes. Uh, there, uh, just a quick note. There's a couple swear words in it. Of course, we bleeped them all out. Um, I th- again, I, I think it explains a lot of our culture today. So we'll, we'll play it, and then we'll talk about the lessons. Clip 1088. Day one, this woman kept trying to get my attention, I felt. And I, you know, I don't reward that, right? And I'm happy to do it if it's not for attention, if it's for help. But this woman, it was clear. And so I ignored, ignored it. And all of a sudden, she just exploded at night and started saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And she started, she had her hand like she was stabbing at people. And people were like running from her, going totally berserk. And then I saw who she was. I saw the dynamic of what was going on. And instantly, I realized who she was. She was a woman who had 50. She was one of the first um, people that was multiple personality disorders, MPDs, that they call them. One of the first diagnosed ones when they first came up with the title of this. And she had been institutionalized. And her story was so brutal because she actually, her father had been sexually abusing her for a good portion of her life. And she finally told somebody and he had her institutionalized, people that I guess were his friends. And they there, the doctor there actually sexually abused her. He would drug her and sexually abuse her. So if you can only imagine going inside your head where there's pain no matter what, you're out of control. We all have to find a way to survive. We have to find a way to meet our fundamental needs for certainty, for variety, for God's sakes, when you're being trapped, for feeling like you have some significant control over your life, for the feeling of connection or love or growth or contribution. These are human needs that have to be found in our life for us to feel like we can function so if we can't find them in good ways, we'll find them in bad ways. And her way was to just change personalities. That's one way to get out of pain. If you're being viciously attacked and you're out of control, try to become someone else. And she kept doing it and doing it. Long story shortened, um, she's screaming, doing this. People are, people are freaking out. And all of a sudden, she starts talking like a little girl and like an old man. And, I mean, it looked like something out of Exorcist. <laughs> and in the middle of all this, I let her just go and go and go. And I finally just said to her, I said, you know, I understand you're in a lot of pain and I just want you to know that I know who you are and I know what you've been through. And then I told the room the story of what she threw while she stood there with her mouth opening. 
and just gapped open. And I said, so I want you to know that I, I know you believe you're all these personalities, but I said, there's probably a reason you're here. And I said, I think the reason you're here is because, you know, changing personalities was a brilliant solution for you to survive in those situations. And you had to keep more and more personalities, but you kept doing it so much. Now you're out of the institution, but you're still living in pain. And I said, the problem is, I said, you must be here because at some level, you know, this isn't working because no one can love someone when they don't know who they're going to be next. Hmm. And it just grabbed her. I found her internal need. And then as I started working with her, she would jump back. She wanted control. She would try to do something. And she said, I'm going to pee on this chair. And I said, you pee on that chair. I said, I'll slap you across this room. And, you know, she wasn't ready for that piece. Obviously, I'm not going to do it. I'm just using the shock factor. I said, I'm not some stupid psychiatrist that you can play these games with. I said, I know who the f*** you are. And you know who you are deep inside. And I said, all of this stuff was brilliant, brilliant adaptation that helped you survive. But now it's separating you from everyone. It's causing you to feel the deepest pain. And I said, I think it's brilliant you have so many personalities. Children have lots of personalities. You say, you know, I'm Superman. No, I'm Batman. I'm Superman and Batman. You can do all that stuff when you're a kid. I said, when you're an adult, you say that just people want to lock you up. I said, so you're probably great with, I said, you're probably great with children. And she looked at me and she goes, I am great with children. You know? And you're just watching going in and out. So anyway, you know, it's an hour and a half process. I'm trying to tell you in two minutes, but the bottom line in the end is the way I finally kicked her over the edge was she goes, yeah, but I, you know, she says, I was one of the first MPDs. I said, I know. And they're so common now, aren't they? Because I knew, I knew her biggest need was to be significant. She was defeating all the psychiatrists. She wanted to be the significant drive needed to be met more than any other drive for her on the surface. What she needed more was love. So I said to her, I used the significance drive. I said, yeah, it's so common. I mean, MPDs are a dime a dozen. There's nothing unique about them at all. You could just see her face just drop. I just <laughs> took it all away. And then I turned around and I said, but you know, and the cameras are rolling, by the way. So what I'm not telling you is inside my gut when this first starts, I'm like, are you kidding me? This woman is splitting personalities and being a freak in the middle of them filming here. They're going to like, this is who comes to Tony Robbins seminar or something like that. You know? I got the room full of like CEOs, you know, Mark Benioff, you know, from Salesforce and, you know, billionaires. And this woman is like taking away my entire ability to reach people is what ran through my head. But I let go of that and just worked on her. But at the end, the cameras are still rolling. And I said, look. There are a dime a dozen, but I said, you know, I don't think there's ever been anyone in history that's ever had 52 personalities or even two and who integrated in a matter of two minutes or less on national television. But I said, I don't think you're capable of that. (laughs) (laughs) It was just the perfect double bind. And she went through all these conversions in her face. All right, we stopped there. So did you catch the line? Well, there's a lot there, a lot of good stuff there. I love when he said, it was just about a minute ago, her biggest need was to be significant. Her significance drive needed to be met, but what she really needed was to be loved. I think that is the root motivation of Black Lives Matter and campus cry bullies and so many other negative forces in our country, a drive to be significant. And because there's no proper role models, there's no real direction given on how to be actually significant, that people make stuff up. (laughs) <laughs> I make stuff up where it's not there to make a scene to get to, to get attention to be significant so how can we properly channel that good desire that's what I want to talk about next and we'll go into a little deeper uh, on what this really means Mike Slater show the blaze radio network spread the word Mike Slater part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network 
in the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. You're listening to Mike Slater. Slater, I know that was a long clip of uh, Tony Robbins, but he's entertaining enough, right? But I just love that. I want you to hear the full story and how this person was acting crazy, multiple personality disorder, and he met it and, and like hit the root of it when he realized that her biggest need was to be significant. And she got, she loved the fact that she was so difficult. Right, she could beat all the the um, not chiropractors, all the therapists, and and no one could figure her out. She loved that. He, but Tony Robbins said, "Okay, well, let's redirect your desire to be significant because you're it's it's you're missing it, right? Yes, it's good to be significant, but not in the way you want to be significant. So let's redirect your desire." And that's when he said, "Hey, I bet no one with 52 personalities has ever condensed them into one on national television." But, you know, you're not capable of that. Oh, yes, I am. And that's it. I think this desire, this drive, this need to be significant right now is the root of our of our culture, right? With social media and reality TV and famous people who are famous just because they're famous. People want their own slice of that. And I think that's fine, but people are searching aimlessly to get there, right? I, th- I think it's it's good to want to be significant, right? I want to invent the polio vaccine, and that'll make me significant, said Jonas Zogger, all right? But but if you're not, that, that's directed properly, if it's not directed properly, then you start searching for significance in all the wrong places. And I think that's the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, there's leaders and followers. that Always that disclaimer on everything we talk about here. There's leaders and followers. There's environmentalist leaders and environmentalist followers. There's Black Lives Matter leaders and there's Black Lives Matter followers. And I think this applies to maybe both, but certainly the followers. I think these kids have a desire to live a significant life, just like uh, the uh, people, uh, black people from a couple generations ago with the civil rights movement, right? We're going to fight the man. I think kids today want to fight the man, but the man's not so big and bad <laughs> as much as from not even too many decades, uh, generations ago, right? They have this desire to live a significant life, but really so many people around them have failed them that they don't know how to do that properly. They come from broken families. They don't have role models. Quick sidebar, you know the uh, in Milwaukee, the 23-year-old who was shot by a 24-year-old black police officer which started the riots there. I said on, the, on my local show on Monday, I said, I guarantee you 95% of the rioters there don't have a significant uh, male role model or don't have a father in the house. Now, there's no way of proving that, right? But the next day, the 23-year-old's dad came out and said, 
I just got out of prison two months ago. I've been in and out my whole life. I was never there for my son. And I want to apologize to my entire family and to the entire community for being a bad role model for my son. And the, the guy, the dad said, of course, my kid would want to grow up to be like me in and out of jail because that's the, that's the role model I was for him. And I want to apologize to everyone for that. I was like, yeah, no kidding. That's exactly, that's exactly how this works. So these kids come from broken families, no role models, no education system. So all these kids don't even know what living a meaningful and significant life looks like. So they freak out and they lash out and they grasp at straws and they light buildings on fire because that'll make me significant. They look for rushes, right? Right? These quick adrenaline bursts give you a false sense of significance. This is what joining a gang is all about. Right? It's to fill a void. You talk to any anyone who study gangs or police officer or drug task force people, they'll all tell you that the number one reason why kids join gangs in the first place is to feel accepted and to feel a part of a family. Okay, that only happens when a child doesn't already feel accepted or a part of a family. Whether it's your actual family or uh, church family, sports family, whatever. Whatever, something productive family. <laughs> if you don't have that, then you, you, but you crave it. You look for it in a gang. A gang fills a void. Drugs fill a void. Rioting fills a void because all these people, all these kids, this younger generation wants to be significant and they don't know how. That's my thesis. Just like this lady with multiple personality disorders, her biggest desire was to be significant and she didn't know how to do it. So she was being crazy. And Tony Robbins said, here's how you're going to be significant now. You're going to be the first person ever to consolidate 52 multiple, you know, 52 personalities into one on national TV right now. I think that's what we need for, for the millennials today, the Black Lives Matter protesters, the crybabies on college campuses. We need to direct their desire to be significant into something productive. I'll give you another example. First of all, what do you think of that? Slater Radio on Twitter, and uh, we'll take your phone call to 1-888-900-3393. 1-888-900-3393. That's my working, uh, working thesis. I want to give you another example. Um, and I came across both of these on the same day. I think it was on Tuesday of this week. Okay, I, came across both, I came across that Tony Robbins interview and this Instagram post on the same day, which is just weird because... I don't, I don't ever listen to Tony Robbins and I don't follow this guy on Instagram. So I don't know why I came across both these on the same day. Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith uh, from Jay and Silent Bob and Mall Rats. He's a comedian and director, actor. And he has an attractive daughter. She's 17. She posted a picture of herself on Instagram as 17-year-old girls are like to do. And someone wrote a comment on this 17-year-old girl's picture that I, I can't even begin to read it. It's just got every swear word you can imagine. It's horrible. So this is what Kevin Smith wrote, the dad. He took a picture of that and then posted it on his Instagram and he said, what it's like to be my daughter. 17-year-old Harley Quinn Smith received this message simply for the heinous crime of posting a pic of herself on Instagram. Wow. Way to unload on a teen girl because you have nothing to do in life. 
But even though I should be apoplectic about it, my kid thought it was funny. But either way, here's a nickel worth, a nickel's worth of free advice for folks like this troll. If you hate me or my kid this much, the better use of your time is to make your dreams come true instead of slamming others for doing the same. You know, the best revenge is living insanely well. So if you want to get back at a 17-year-old girl for the grievous crime of enjoying her life, the best way to do it is to succeed in your own existence. Show the world why we should be paying attention to you instead of anyone else. There it is, right? That's what he's, quick time out. That's what Kevin Smith is saying, right? He said, show the world why you are significant instead of tearing down someone else because randomly attacking others merely communicates how creatively and emotionally bankrupt you are. You think you have something to offer the world, but others are getting all the attention? Don't complain or punish the world. Just create. Create something that nobody's ever seen before. And there's a good chance the world will notice you. All right, quick time out. If I uh, was writing this to Black Lives Matter protesters, I'd say create something nobody's ever seen before. And there's a good chance the world will notice you. Now, it's true we do notice you when you light buildings on fire. But that's not the right way to be significant. Something like that, right? All right, last part here. Attacking teen girls on the internet is the saddest form of self-pleasure that exists and requires no discernible skill or talent. You want attention? Don't make yourself mad. Make something original and fun. Because if you're not being useful in this world, you're being useless. Don't be useless. Go make stuff that makes people happy. That whole post is about telling this guy who's attacking his daughter, go go do something. <laughs> be, <laughs> be significant in life. But clearly that person who's attacking this 17-year-old with this horrible thought, whatever he's... He's not. He's not significant. He's not doing anything, but he wants to be significant. So he's like, oh, I'm just going to tear this other person down. So that person, whoever wrote that, doesn't have direction. Role models provide direction. This is why broken families and a decayed society results in the destruction we see today. Everyone has a drive to be significant, but it's, if it's not directed in the proper way, then you get chaos. one 888 and Slater Radio on Twitter. I'd love to get your feedback on these. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Let's go to Bryson, who's in um, Dallas. What's going on, Bryson? How are you, man? I'm good. And yourself, Mike? Good, good to talk to you. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time here. So what's on your mind? Well, uh, like I was telling the call screener, I just got turned on to you. Uh, actually, I, I love one of your quotes about uh, 
uh, about principles. You may not always be right. That that quote, I, I use that quite a lot, so I have to send you a check. But mm-hmm. as far as the Black Lives Matter people are concerned, I'm a 47-year-old African-American, which I don't like that term. I'm a black man. I'm a six-year Marine Corps veteran. I'm a former police officer. Uh, quick, down and dirty. These people are not trying to look for significance. They're trying to get stuff. That's what they want. They want stuff. If you look at their list of demands, they want stuff. They want they want the government to take from me and give to them in some shape, form, or fashion. This has nothing to do with, well, just because my, my I didn't have my dad and, and this, that, and the other. No, I, I, I don't have opportunity to get stuff. I don't think no one has ever told me I could get stuff, just like you just said it. I didn't know it until you just said it. The cop that shot him, shot the kid, was 24. He was 23. What happened? There was two, yes. two different lines. These, these black lives matter, uh, matter people, they just want stuff. I have millennials that live with me, my stepdaughter, my son-in-law. They don't understand Black Lives Matter. They wouldn't go with Black Lives Matter if they were giving out free checks. But it, it, these mm-hmm. people, no, they're not trying to look for significance. They just want stuff. I'll, I'll give you a, a yes and. I'm not going to disagree with any of that. But I, you, so I said one thing, and then you just repeated another point, that, and then it just clicked to me for real. So the uh, guy, the kid who was shot was 23, the man, 23, 23 year old, and then the 24 year old, the cop. So 23 and 24, both black. What was different about these two gentlemen's lives that that one that one you know stole a gun and then pointed it at a cop and the other became a police officer? What do you, what do you think if you had to take a guess? Because you joined the Marines and so you also took that same other course of life. What's the difference? I I don't have to guess. I teach it to my my young family all the time. It's 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 actions and attitudes and discipline. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with the philosophy of self-esteem, uh, that, that's philosophical garbage. These people have no discipline when they do that. Uh, I, in, even in my own life, I have classmates that I had to put in jail. So, you know, and I, it's not that I went to Harvard. I didn't go to uh, the UT. I didn't go to any of those. I just made some other decisions, regardless of what happened at my house. What, so, like I say... What inspired you to make those right decisions? Or who? Who inspired you? What or who? I had I had a great support system. I tell people all the time, matter of fact, I was just telling a young man yesterday that I had a real screwed up life. My my mom and my dad were right there. My stepdad was right there. They went to work every day. They didn't, well, I don't want to go to work. I'm going to just call in. I was never told about whether a white man is this and the man got his foot on my neck. No, my mom and my dad made sure that I was, you know, hey, get out. If you bring home a D, great, no problem. We can get you tutoring. But if you bring home bad citizenship, great, that means you're up clowning, and we need to straighten that out at the house. Mm-hmm. So Good stuff. They, 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 they instilled discipline into yep. me. I, That's I, it. I, I did a and lot of stuff in, in my life. So And you're passing you it on. Bryson, I hate I got to hit the top of the hour, man. Can we talk again? Can you call back in another time? Brother, I'd love to. Thank you for Dude, everything you I do, Mike. I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much, man. You made my day just having you listening and being here and, and spreading the words. Awesome. Um, I, I got a minute here. I, I talked to uh, someone the other day on my local show, Alexander's his name, another black man, and he said uh, he, he, took, he, was, he criticized what I said. 
And he said, Slater, there's no way you can look at the picture of this 23-year-old black man and, and say that and say he doesn't have a father. That's stereotyping. And I said, oh, I didn't say that I could look at his picture. I said I could look at his actions and say that he didn't have a uh, father or a role model growing up. That's a big difference. And I said, Alexander, and he, because he said, Slater, no, I didn't grow up with a father either. And I said, okay, who was your male role model? Is it my grandpa? Well, there you go. That's it. I'm talking male role models. That's the important part. And he told, I said, uh, Alexander, what are two things your grandpa taught you? And he said, first, life is all about choices, the choices you make. And I decided that I didn't want to be like these other people who are around me. So I made different life choices in them. And my grandpa also taught me that when all else fails, hard work will get you to the end. I said, oh, yeah, those are two pretty good life lessons from your grandpa. And that's why Alexander is just like Bryson there. A good man and a great neighbor and a great American. More than please. Education and family. Focus on those two things above all else. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. It's sad because, you know, this will happen because they're not helping the black community. Like, you know, the rich people, they got all this money and they're not like, you know, trying to give us none. It's, it's, it's... Yeah, so it's, that's what Bryson was referring to. In the last segment, how are you, Slater? Because that is America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. I want to chat a little more about the riots in Milwaukee. Um, if Black Lives Matter had an ounce of credibility in the first place, if they had a single good point to make, which if you really deep down, they do have one or two, right? So it's fine. But every time they light a gas station on fire, whatever righteous purpose they might have had goes up in smoke with the gas station. I want to make a couple of predictions here, a couple a couple statements. We'll back them up. I mentioned this in the last segment that 95% of the people riding in Milwaukee did not have an active father figure in their life. That's it. 95%. No, I know, I know there's no way to prove that, but... Now, a Milwaukee pastor said that the reason people are rioting is because of a lack of economic opportunity. Okay, but why? Why is there? Why are there no economic opportunities in their city? Well, now there's none because they burned buildings to the ground. But there wasn't before because why would anyone invest in that community? Right? Why? Why? Why would someone invest in, in an area that's dangerous and in an area where you can't hire any uh, reliable? Employees. And the reason they're not reliable is because they came from broken families and they had a horrible education system with the public schools. Okay. So what, what, what I mean, they can't read or write. There's a school one and a half miles from the white house, the public high school, one and a half miles from the white house. 8% of the students there can read and write at grade level. 8%. Yeah, uh, the president's daughters did not attend that high school. 
Okay, so if that's the situation with the high schools in Milwaukee and inner city Milwaukee, why would any business open up there? It's not going to happen. So yeah, there's no economic opportunities because of broken families and broken education system. That's point one. Now I want to go a little deeper. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that 95% of people riding grew up eating breakfast at school. You're saying, well, that's not where I thought you were going with that, Slater. I bring this one up because school started last week in California. Every state's a little different, but the kiddos are now back in school. And I don't know if this is the same with your state or your district, but in California, one-third of students, one-third, not only eat lunch provided them provided to them by the government, which kind of makes sense because they're there at that time, whatever. One-third of kids in California eat breakfast at school. Breakfast. That has a devastating effect on kids. Imagine growing up. Every morning, you wake up, you're hungry. And your able-bodied, probably overweight themselves parents, choose not to feed you. You are hungry, you want food, and they say, wait until you go to school, someone there will feed you. (laughs) What is the number one job of a parent? I'm going to be a a dad in six weeks. Six weeks, we're going to have our son, first kid. The number one job of parents is to protect, nurture, provide, okay, right? Physically, emotionally, spiritually. I think pretty high on the list is feeding them. And there are a third of parents in California who choose not to feed their kids breakfast. Now, you may be saying, well, Slater, I didn't like breakfast when I was a kid. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about choosing not to feed your kids breakfast. It's so bad that on weekends, School, because kids don't eat on weekends, because parents choose not to feed their kids, schools will send kids home on Friday with a backpack full of food because there's such little expectation that their parents will feed them. And in the summertime, because parents don't feed their kids, school buses drive to homes in the morning and drop off food. Contemplate what that does to a child's brain to have an adult who is tasked with taking care of them and actively chooses not to feed them. Now, the adults are eating, <laughs> right? Somehow they're eating, but they're not feeding their kids. That is crazy. Now, I don't want anyone telling me that's because these families don't have enough money. That's not it. A bowl of oatmeal and an apple cost 30 cents. This has nothing to do with money. This has nothing to do with not having time. It takes about four minutes to make it. I don't want to hear any excuse about parents working late, this, that, the other. You can heat up some oatmeal in a microwave. You get a free microwave, the Salvation Army, heat up some oatmeal in it. There is literally no excuse to not feed your children breakfast and not provide your children breakfast. No excuse. Zero. Nothing. I don't want to hear any excuse. There's none. But one third, I'd, listen, if it was 1% of kids, I'd be like, oh man, it's a big problem. We got to take it. A third? Crazy. Now, this has been going on for a while in California. Fast forward 20 years, now these kids are adults, they grew up 
not being fed by parents. They grew up being fed by the government breakfast, lunch, and pretty soon we'll have dinner at schools. Just wait for that. Is there any surprise that they're rioting because they believe that the government's not doing enough to take care of them? They've been taken care of, fed by the government their entire life. Breakfast, lunch, and and in some cases don't eat dinner because the government doesn't provide it, which again is why it's going to change soon and government will provide dinner too. So breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you don't see how that, I mean, of course you do. That's going to have a devastating effect on kids and we're seeing the, the consequences of that right now. People rioting because someone else isn't working enough to feed them, to provide for them, to give them enough. But why would they? Why would they themselves work for, for anything when they were taught as young as they can remember that someone else will provide for them? And now what's worse than that is now they have kids. And they don't even know that they should feed those kids breakfast. <laughs> At least I think parents, maybe like this last generation, they knew that they should feed their kids breakfast. They just chose not to. They chose the easy way. But then these kids grow up and like breakfast? Why would I feed my kids breakfast? Like Just get breakfast at school. And the cycle continues. There's such a crisis of parenting in our country. And it started out small. Right? The government doing a little bit here to help out a few people. And then it grows to people who don't really need the help. Lazy people taking advantage of it. And then eventually everyone expects it. And politicians promise more. And then accuse you of being racist if you don't think we should give away more and more and more to more people. And now we're at a point where I make an argument here on the radio that the government shouldn't feed kids breakfast. Parents should do that. And I'm the racist. I have no compassion. I'm going to get all these emails, how privileged I am, how I don't get it. Yeah, that's how far we've fallen. When I get on the radio and say, hey, you know what? Parents should feed their kids breakfast. Oh, you don't understand. You don't understand. <laughs> what? Forever parents have fed their kids breakfast. There's never been a time in human history when parents don't feed their kids breakfast. And now I say it and I, I that, that should happen. Oh, you don't, you don't understand. Amazing. So the people riding in Milwaukee, don't get me wrong, I don't I don't condone it, but I feel bad for them. Certainly not because they're right, they're wrong. But because they've been raised in a way that many of them truly don't know what it's like to live an independent and meaningful life. That's sad. I'll tell you one last thing about breakfast. Because when a kid goes to school and eats breakfast there, they go to the cafeteria. The other two-thirds of kids know that that kid's parents don't feed them breakfast. So officials are concerned that there's a stigma on eating breakfast at school. Now, that's, that probably is. So my solution to that is, well, listen, if a kid doesn't, you know, if there's a stigma on kids eating breakfast at school, then we should contact the parents and tell them to feed their kid breakfast. So let's just pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, you're not feeding your kid breakfast in the morning. You should do that. That's solution number one. If that doesn't work, then I absolutely believe that there's a role in the state, role for the state to do that. Because if you're a parent not feeding your kids breakfast, there's probably a lot of other problems going on in the house as well. Drugs, et cetera, whatever. So let's get the state involved here. I absolutely believe that. But you want to know what the, the government solution is instead? Have mandatory breakfast at school where everyone eats breakfast at school. That way there'll be no more stigma. 
Again, I got a kid in six weeks. There is no way I will ever let my son leave the house without eating breakfast. Impossible. Won't happen. Oh, Slater, he doesn't like, what if he doesn't like breakfast? That's what I'm talking about. If he wants food, I'm going to feed him. That's what I'm talking about. How we can live in a country where one third of parents in California choose not to feed their kids. It's, it's unfathomable. 1-800, or excuse me, 1-888-900-3393. And I bet most of those people riding in Milwaukee probably ate breakfast at school. And everything else that comes with that. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Slider. Slider. Sorry, writing on Twitter or on uh, Facebook. Uh, okay. As we were. Um, I'm going to share this. Keep this Keep this in mind, this fact here. So this is from the Brookings Institute, which is a left-leaning group. Should I quote it here? Yeah, I'll quote it. So you know I'm not making it up. Uh, he says, this study says, let politicians, school teachers, and administrators, community leaders, ministers, and parents drill into children the message that in a free society, they enter adulthood with three major responsibilities. One, at least finish high school. Two, get a full-time job. And three, wait until age 21 to get married and have children. Our research shows that of American adults who followed these three simple rules, only 2% are in poverty, and nearly 75% have joined the middle class, which is defined at earning about $55,000 or more a year. That's it. Okay? So let me well, explain this again. You have three things. If you do three things then you will not live in a state of permanent poverty. You may be poor for a moment, but any of us could be poor for a moment for any reason. If you finish high school, get a job, any job, and don't have kids until you're married and 21, then you will not live in a state of permanent poverty. Period. End of sentence. This is a leaning left group who has come to this conclusion. Now, this is what, in their words, they said this is what needs to be drilled into children. But that's not what they kids are drilled with. Because it doesn't include being victimized. It doesn't include systematic injustices. Like that giant vacuum cleaner that flies around and sucks males into prison. It doesn't include the toxic pollen in the air that makes adults decide not to feed their kids breakfast before school. The Brookings Institute didn't take into account slavery, which today results in black people not being able to hold a job. I'm being sarcastic with those three things, obviously. The Brookings Institute didn't deal with these made-up things. They dealt with reality. 
And in reality, if you graduate high school, get a job, and don't have kids out of wedlock, then you will not live in poverty. Period. End of sentence. Now, I was, I was never on the, uh, the bandwagon that says, uh, you know, Barack Obama sh- should should have done more about race relations in America. I never, I never jumped on that train because, I don't know. I think my nature is that, uh, I think the president is way too powerful. And way too admired. All presidents, right? The presidency really shouldn't be that big of a deal. It should just be like, oh, okay, he's president. You know, whatever. Like, it, it's like, they shouldn't have so much power over our lives. They shouldn't have so much influence over government. It certainly doesn't define us as a country. It shouldn't. It was never designed to. So when someone says, oh, Obama should do more about race relations, I was always like, well, you know, uh, we can do things about race or whatever. Like, I don't, I don't want to put that on this person's back. And also, I'm young enough where... A black man becoming president is like, whatever. But it was just this last week when it hit me. I'm like, yeah, you know, he should have done more these last seven and a half years. I don't I don't know what it was about the Milwaukee protests out of any other racial issue in America, but that was the one. That was my last straw, I guess. And I guess all I wanted to say is, Fellow black people, really, just you know, do, do the message that uh, Bryson shared with us earlier, right, half an hour ago. Just, brother, just take Bryson's words and share that, and say, you know, black people in America, you have every opportunity in the world available to you right here, right now. And if, for whatever reason, you feel like you don't have a chance to make it in America. Think of for just a moment what your life would be like in any other time period in history or any other place in the world right now. And you'll be pretty grateful that you live here. Because let's be real, you could be living in India. You know, India is the second largest country in the world. It's 1.3 million Chinese, 1.3 in India, or 1.1 billion in China. Let me back it up. 1.3 billion in China, 1.1 billion in India. Okay, so... A lot of Indian people, you could be living in India. If you were plucked off the earth and randomly dropped anywhere on the earth, it'd probably be in China or India. Now, in India, they have a literal caste system that no matter what you do, you cannot escape from. So don't tell me in America that you know there's no income mobility. You could be living in India where that that's true. I had a uh, Uber driver at the Republican convention who was from India. And he said, if you are born into a family of street sweepers, you will sweep streets for the rest of your life no matter what. There's nothing you can do. It's impossible. Impossible. That's the caste system. We don't have that here in America. So get over it. You could live your life in a Middle Eastern country where they have modern day slavery. You could live in Africa where the leading causes of death are AIDS and diarrhea and malaria and lung cancer from breathing in smoke because you have to light a fire inside your house in order to cook food, and the only fuel for the fire is animal dung. So you breathe in those toxins and die. That's the second leading cause of death in the world. So all right, so quit your whining. Be grateful. And don't be overcome by anger and bitterness. It doesn't look good on you. And, and those who came before us expected more out of you. And by acting like this, you're letting them down. You're letting everyone down. So get up. Get moving. Don't complain.
Something like that, no? But he can't say that. I guess he could, but... I don't know. I don't think enough people have stated this, but in Milwaukee, again, where the riots are going on, we're going on. Do you know the last Republican mayor was 1906? (laughs) What? Since then, it's been all Democrats, except there were three mayors who were socialists. (laughs) And not like Bernie Sanders socialist where you're a socialist but running as a Democrat, but like pretty much a socialist. He's like, I'm on the socialist ticket. Three, three socialists, all Democrat. But everything's got to be conservative as well. It's odd. I want to come back. I want to make the argument that politicians don't really care about it, people in the inner city. They don't. I'll prove it. Do it next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, how are you? Appreciate you being here. Sorry, I'm in a Facebook conversation with a person who's just annoying. <laughs> and just being difficult. That's it. I, I should stop. I'll, I'll, go, I'll have any Facebook conversation with someone who is asking honest questions and engaged in a serious conversation. But someone who's just being difficult. I'm not going to. I shouldn't have jumped in. All right, I'm abandoning. Abort mission. Abort. So, let me make one more prediction about Black Lives Matter, Milwaukee, the future. <laughs> it's it's interesting how Milwaukee hasn't really gotten as much attention as other inner city protests have this year. And the reason is the facts of this story are much harder to lie about and mislead and manipulate. And the reason why people don't care about it more, I'm just going to be honest here. Don't, don't be mad at me. I'm just sharing it. Truth, I think. The reason people don't care about Milwaukee more and the reason the media doesn't care that much about it is because all the rioting is contained in black areas, black communities. As soon as, and just wait for this because this will happen, as soon as the looting and rioting moves into nicer areas, white areas, that's when the media will care. And it's only a matter of time before the rioters figure out that looting their own neighborhood doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, right now they're chanting about beating up white people and robbing white people, but there's no white people near them. Now, if they go a few blocks down the road into a nicer part of town, well, that's... <laughs> they'll be able to do that more, right? So, and, and that is when. When they do that, when they figure that out, that's when people are going to go crazy. It's just a matter of time. Now, I made that prediction on my local show on Monday. And then Tuesday, a video came out of the person who was killed in Milwaukee, his sister, saying, stop looting, stop burning stuff down, bring that blank to the suburbs. Don't do that here. And I love that because CNN wrote a story about the sister and said, her, the sister, I forget her name, Mary, Mary calls for end of violence and destruction. And it's like, well, 
she didn't really call for the end of violence and destruction. She just called for it to be moved down the street into the white neighborhood. So it's just a matter of time before that happens. And that is when people will really start to care, which is sad because we should really care about the things that are causing this before it even happens. I think it was Ted Cruz made the point that the media doesn't care about immigration because there's not lawyers and journalists running across the border. And if it was a bunch of lawyers and journalists, then people in D.C. would be a little more uh, concerned about the border. Same thing here. As soon as the riots go into white neighborhoods, their neighborhoods, then they'll care. Could you imagine if there were some rioters in D.C. and instead of you know, burning buildings in inner city D.C., they went to the, the nicer parts of D.C. where all the bureaucrats and politicians live? Could you imagine? Like, that's when they'll care. Now, I know you care right now. You care right now because it's so sad for everyone in Milwaukee who's been living like this. And it's sad for the kids who are living in the midst of this. And it's sad for the people who really do want a better life and who are working hard for it and getting attacked for it. You know, I, I watched the first couple of days of the Milwaukee riots and I saw the gas station burning and my first thought was the person who works at that gas station and now they don't have a job anymore. So thanks, rioters. Like, what what, what are you doing? And, and it's not that hard to imagine a story where the person working at the gas station was a single mother, maybe lived on welfare her whole life, finally decided she didn't want to live that life anymore, wanted to provide something more for her family, searched for a job, looked for a job, couldn't take this job across town because she had to get her kids ready for school. But there was this job available at the gas station a couple blocks away so she could get her kids ready for school, walk to the job, get back in time. And then a bunch of thugs burned it to the ground. You know, I read that rioters tore up a bus stop, um, like awnings, you know, like protective coverings over the, the bus stops and then burned, ripped them up and burned them. And you know, it's just a, a sentence in a, in an article, but I see that and I think of, you know, it's Milwaukee. It's cold. It's going to start snowing soon. They're not going to replace those. So I think of all the people who are going to work, get up early to hit the bus. And now they don't have a bus awning to protect them from the weather. So it's freezing cold out there. Like, thanks riders. Like what, but again, the politicians don't care if this was in their neighborhood, there'd be a total freak out. Just imagine if the black lives matter protesters went into a, the white, white neighborhood where the politicians live, went to the politician's house and ripped up the mailbox. I mean, like just that alone, they'd flip out, but they can burn down entire buildings in the black neighborhoods. They don't care. And so that's, that's proof one. Cause you know that that's true. And I would dare say progressives don't care about the people in this area. And they haven't for a long time, because I guess my second proof is, they wouldn't look like this if they cared. Again, there hasn't been a Republican mayor in Milwaukee since 1906. All Democrats, except for three socialists. So all Democrats, all, all left-wing mayors. And the current mayor has been there since 2004. It's 12 years. So what, what are you doing? 
What about, what's the mayor been up to? He's lost 12 years. Anything? When will he ever be held accountable for parts of his city? They don't really care. Peggy Noonan wrote a uh, editorial last weekend. The headline was something like how global elites are forsaking their con- their own countrymen. Really good editorial, and, and this is a part that applies to what I'm chatting about here. She says, uh, I close with a story that I haven't seen in the mainstream press. This week, the Daily Caller's Peter Hassan reported that recent Syrian refugees being resettled in Virginia were sent to the state's poorest communities. Data from the State Department showed that almost all Virginia's refugees since October have been placed in towns with lower incomes and higher poverty rates, hours away from the wealthy suburbs outside of D.C. The suburban counties of Fairfax, Loudoun, and Arlington, among the wealthiest in the nation, and home to high concentrations of those who create, populate the government and media, have received nine refugees, that's it. Right, so... They can do the whole, oh, we're so compassionate, we want refugees, we want a million by this time, whatever. But they're not settling the refugees in their neighborhood. The refugees aren't going to their kids' schools. I guarantee you, none of the refugees are going to the Sidwell Friends Academy, which is where the president's daughters go. There's no way. Not a chance. But they'll drop them off in a poor neighborhood, force them to go to a failing school, where you have a teacher who has... 20 different languages in their fifth grade classroom and yeah, drop a kid who speaks Farsi in the, in the school. It's like, guys, and they don't care. Now I don't want to get too off topic here, but this is something I'd like to, uh, I'd like to, I'd like for our country to have a discussion about, because I don't know how it would work exactly. So I don't, we don't need to nitpick over the details right here. Cause I, I don't know, but I'd like to see a discussion about immigrant sponsors or refugee sponsors in America, but not family members. Can't be a family member. It's one thing to have an immigrant come to America from Mexico and they have family members already here and they're their sponsors. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm think, I think sponsors should be unrelated to the refugee or immigrant. So let's take your average progressive who supposedly is all about immigrants, all about refugees. All right. Will you be a sponsor? Well, what's a sponsor do? Sponsors responsible for helping them get a job, helping their kids sign up for school, making sure they don't break the law. Maybe a sponsor's held partially liable for any trouble that an immigrant gets into. Not, not completely liable, but partially of some sort. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the details would be, but I think it's a worthy discussion because I guarantee you progressives wouldn't be down with that, right? If, if every refugee, but why not? It's better for the refugees, isn't it? Isn't it, let's say a refugee from Syria, wouldn't it be great for a refugee to have a contact here in America, a sponsor here who can help them do that? I mean, it'd be good for the refugees. And I think it'd be good for conservatives because you'd see a lot of progressives who want nothing to do with that, right? So call them out on their hypocrisy as well. Why won't they be down with it? Because they want to be distant from it. They don't actually want to help black people in Milwaukee. They don't want to actually help refugees. They don't want to help immigrants. They just want to be praised as people who do without actually having to do anything. 
And then you got conservatives saying, hey, you know, our inner city schools are atrocious. And these refugees aren't assimilating. And we have these, these immigrants committing crimes. Okay, like valid concerns. And then when you say that they call you a racist and a xenophobe and a bigot, but they're the ones who don't care. So isn't that way more bigoted, way more racist to not care than to be the person who says, hey, this is a problem? I would think. 1-888-900-3393. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Slater, because that is... Um, so Trump is three for three on great speeches. The last three speeches have been spectacular. Uh, I don't think we'll have time to break them down today, but they've, they've all been perfect. N- near, near perfect, right? Think of a little nitpicky things I would suggest. Um, actually, let me, make, let me make one of those suggestions now. I think Trump needs to, in each speech, every day, right? Every day, the advice we gave a couple weeks ago, control the media cycle. And put Hillary on the defensive every day. If you do that every day for whatever, 80 days, you will win. Okay. So how do you do that? I think if every speech Trump gave, I think he needs to tell the media exactly what question to ask Hillary Clinton. And make it as explicit and clear as possible. They will do it. They can't help themselves. Rand Paul did this last year better than anyone I've ever seen. He was having a press conference and someone asked him about abortion. And it was, you know, one of those classic progressive trick questions about abortion, whatever it was. And he said, all right, before I answer that question, you go ask Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was the head of the Democratic Party. You go ask Debbie if she thinks it's okay to kill a seven pound baby in the womb. And then I'll answer your question. And the media did. A bunch of times. The next day, every appearance that Debbie Wasserman Schultz made, the media asked him, asked her if she thinks it's okay to kill a seven-pound baby in the womb. And it was amazing. Because the media did that. They asked that question knowing it would make her look bad. Oh, by the way, she said it is that should be allowed. <laughs> right. So the media asked that question knowing it would make her look bad. Someone they like. And knowing that it would make pro-choice people look bad which they are, but they did it anyway because, again, they can't help themselves. I don't really know what to call this, but I'll call it the million-dollar question. Trump needs a million-dollar question every day. So he gave a great speech in Milwaukee, Wednesday or some Thursday maybe. This line is so good. He said, we reject the bigotry of Hillary Clinton which panders to and talks down to communities of color and sees them only as votes, not as individual human beings worthy of a better future. Keep that sentence in line. I'm going to share a story in the next hour about that. She doesn't care at all about the hurting of the people in this country or the suffering she has caused them. 
The African-American community has been taken for granted for decades by the Democratic Party. It's time to break with the failures of the past. I want to offer Americans a new future. Okay, that's near perfect. So here's the suggestion. Throw a little knockout blow. So at the end of that sentence, say, all right, media, go ask Hillary Clinton. Now, you got to be specific what the question is and who to ask it to. Don't be vague. Don't don't leave it up to chance because the media is not going to do it if you leave it up to chance. So say, you, media, go ask Hillary Clinton or whoever, but in this case, Hillary, why she won't let, actually, let me back it up. I have a family walk up on stage. Family from Milwaukee whose daughter is forced to go to a failing public school. And because charter schools aren't allowed in this area, uh, has no other choice, has to go to this failing school. Okay, so let's say this little girl up there, she's six years old. Uh, uh, Mary is her name. Say, hey, media, go ask Hillary Clinton why she won't let Mary's parents decide what school to send Mary to. Ask Hillary Clinton why she's going to force Mary, little Mary here, to go to a school where only 8% of kids can read and write at grade level. Ask her why she's preventing Mary's parents from making the best decision for their daughter. Go, go ask her. And end the speech right there. Direct the media, tell them exactly what to ask and to who, to whom to ask it. And they will. And that will, I guarantee you they will. Even though it makes Hillary look bad because they can't help themselves. Tell them what to do. Now, you're probably thinking they won't do it. I'll come back and I'll tell the story of how I, I guarantee you they will. They will follow his orders, but he's got to be specific. He can't leave it up to chance. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America is the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. All right, let me wrap up my thought here in the last segment. I, I suggested that Donald Trump needs to tell the media exactly what question to ask Hillary Clinton. Don't leave it up to chance. Ask her, ask, tell the media the specific question and they will ask it now i'm not going to go through the whole my whole proof of again uh, but you can hear that at the, the blaze.com slash radio in our podcast but let me prove to you that they will do this okay they did with debbie wasserman schultz when Rand paul said why don't you go ask debbie wasserman schultz uh if she thinks it's okay to kill a seven pound baby in the womb and then i'll answer your question notice he didn't say hey go ask a democrat what they think about abortion no, it wasn't that and it wasn't Hey, go ask Democrats if they think it's okay to kill a seven-pound baby in the womb. No, it was a specific question to a specific person. That's the key. You need both those things. Now, why is this important to tell the media what to do? Because if you leave it up to them, they won't do it. (laughs) They need to be directed. And if they are, they're so desperate for content They'll do it even if it makes them look bad or even if it is against what they believe. I promise you. Mark Cuban last Christmas, he wrote around last Christmas, he wrote a blog post 
and he wrote about how he learned to market and brand himself. Right. This is when, as a Mark Cuban, you remember a couple of years ago, he was like just a rich guy, but then he became like super outspoken, uh, you know, lightning rod in your face out there, rich guy. Right. So where did he learn how to do that? He said he learned it from watching Paris Hilton and Dennis Rodman. And he said the reason these two are geniuses at branding themselves, because they have no talent, right? But they're genius at branding themselves because they gave the media content. They told the media what to write. They didn't leave it up to chance. Because if they leave it up to chance, they weren't going to get written about. But they would call the paparazzi and say, I'm going to be here at this time. And I'm going to be with this person. Who was last dating this person. And I'm going to be wearing this and we're going to be going from here to there. They provided the content to a lazy media. And I know people in TV, they are desperate for content. They need to fill time. So if you give them the, tell them exactly what they need to do, they'll do it. So Trump needs to do that with Hillary. Say, hey, media, go ask Hillary Clinton why she wants to force black families to send their kids to failing schools. Failing schools that she would never send Chelsea to. All right, be more specific. Hillary Clinton, why didn't you send, this is is better. Hillary, or hey media, go ask Hillary why she decided to send Chelsea Clinton to the Sidwell Friends Academy as opposed to the public school that's a mile and a half from the White House. Boom, Do, do that. Ask that question. Media will ask it. Guarantee you. And even if Hillary comes up with some whatever answer, it's perfect. doesn't matter. Because if she's answering that question, then she's not saying whatever it is she would want to say. Right? About other things. Trump setting the tone and uh, controlling the narrative and being on the offense. That's how you do it. I, we'll call it the million dollar question. You get it. So that's my argument. See if he ever does it. Um, all right. Changing gears here slightly. I came across three interesting stories the same day. Okay. <laughs> These three things happened pretty much the same day. The Hollywood Reporter magazine did an interview with Oprah and Anna DuVernay. Anna DuVernay is a director, both black women. And Oprah said, she's not going to use the word diversity anymore. She said, it's not about diversity. It's about inclusion. In other words, the things we have in common, which is exactly what we preach on this show all the time. And conservatives talk about all the time, but check out this line from, from DuVernay. The question was, do you feel as a black woman, that there are doors that are still closed to you. Now, the reporter most certainly wanted her to say, oh, it's it's horrible being a black woman in America. Oh, justice and blah, blah. You know what she said? No. <laughs> she said, no. No one's going to stop me from doing what I want to do. I just have to figure out a way to do it that might not be the easy route that my counterparts who don't look like me have. They may have a bit of an easier time of it, an easier road, but that doesn't mean I can't do it. And she says, part of the challenge that I find when I enter these conversations with journalists is that you've thought about it in a way that society thinks about it. The plight of the woman filmmaker, the plight of the black artist, the plight of whoever's on the outside. 
But if you receive it and treat it as a plight, being black, being a woman, if you treat it as a plight, that starts to manifest in you and it affects your creativity. Awesome. In other words, stop being a victim because that's what that question is set, set up for her to say. Do you feel that there are doors that are still closed to you? Oh yes. There's, there's so many doors are closed. She's like, no, (laughs) no one's going to stop me from doing what I want to do. In other words, I'm never going to be a victim. So stop even talking about it that way. Stop talking about the plight of the woman filmmaker, the plight of the black artist. You're framing it in a way that's poison to people. Because if you think like that, it's going to manifest in you and your life and your heart and your mind and it will affect your creativity. So stop peddling that poison. I love it. That's story number one. Story number two. The, uh, did you watch the Olympics this last couple of weeks? The black swimmer who won the 100 meter freestyle, Simone Manuel is her name. I was watching the race. I was a swimmer my whole life, so I watched the swimming religiously. Um, she won the race uh, on lane one, which never happens. Didn't even think about she was black. Didn't, like, didn't even... Did not cross my mind until the announcers started making a big deal about it, how she was the first black female swimmer to win a medal, let alone gold. So she walks over to Michelle Tafoya and she, Michelle asks the normal questions like, well, how does it feel? (laughs) And she answered the questions like anyone else would answer. But you could tell that the NBC reporter and Michelle Tafoya wanted so badly for Simone to say something about being black. So they finally awkwardly asked what this means for black people across the country. You know what she said? Oh, she said, oh yeah, it's great. And this and, but, but then she says, I look forward to the day though. When I'm not known as a black swimmer, I'm just known as Simone. In other words, shut up NBC. I'm an American. It's the Morgan Freeman approach to race relations. Stop talking about it. That's story number two. Story number three, Cam Newton, quarterback for the Panthers. He was asked by a reporter why so many fans don't like him. He's a bit of a showboat guy. And the reporter said, uh, well, it's got to be racism, right? And Cam Newton says, no, it's not racism. And the reporter says, well, what is it if it's not racism? And I love that sentence. That's such a telling sentence because this is how the left thinks. Racism is the fallback to anything that they can't come to a conclusion on. So if someone's in jail, it's not because they robbed a bank. It's racism. If black kids get lower test scores, it's not because black kids statistically come from more broken homes that don't value education, like more stable homes. Nope. It's racism. The teachers are racist. The test is racist or whatever. It's always racism. So here's this guy, this reporter who's saying, well, what is it? If it's not racism, because that's all he can think of. I I can't think of any other reason, so it must be racist. What is it if it's not? He says, I don't want this to be about race, because it's not. It's not. Like, we're beyond that as a nation. So, and he got ripped to shreds for them. So, this is what's really fascinating. All these stories happen the same time. You got three people. Oprah and Anna DuVernay. Simone Manuel, the swimmer, and Cam Newton, who are explicitly saying, explicitly, being black, I'm not going to be a victim. 
stop talking about racism and not everything is racist. Like that's in, in, in that order. Stop being a victim. Anna DuVernay, stop being a victim. Simone Manuel, stop looking at me as black. Cam Newton, not everything is racist. That's amazing. And we can't help ourselves. Still, everything has to be about race. You got these three black people who are saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop, like, can you stop, please? And we're like, oh, no, we must. We must keep always talking about it. It's amazing. You familiar with the Rough Riders? Uh, not the rap group. Uh, Spanish-American War. After the sinking of the USS Maine, government called for some volunteers for this group led by Colonel Leonard Wood and Teddy Roosevelt. The defining characteristic of the Rough Riders, about a thousand, I believe, is that they came from all walks of life to volunteer. You had millionaires from New York City who graduated Ivy League schools and you had cowboys from the West all joining together to become this group known as the Rough Riders. Totally different. They couldn't have come from different planets, but they had a single goal in common. And that's what united them. And the colonel, he wrote back to his wife, Colonel Wood. He said, you would smile to see the New York swells sleeping on the ground, right? The rich, pretty boys sleeping on the ground and on the floor of the pavilion we have without blankets and doing kitchen police for a troop of New Mexico cowboys all working together and as chummy as can be. common goals maybe that's the problem with race relations today is we have no common goal like maybe we used to in the past and i don't even mean a common enemy common goal because there's nothing that overcomes shallow animosity between people more than a common goal maybe we need to find that one 888 mike slater show the blaze radio network spread the word Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Crusaders, I have a, uh, a common cause here. No, I was just talking about common uh, common goals, common cause, common missions, how you overcome shallow differences. So I got one here. This could be a good one for Black Lives Matter protesters, too, to focus on. So just remember this fact here. Um, when people today complain about slavery in America from 150 years ago. By the way, most kids today, try this. Try this on the next, uh, you know, 15-year-old you come across. Most kids today believe that slavery was invented in America and that slavery is a uniquely American thing. Okay. So, and why wouldn't they believe that, right? They're never given proper context on what slavery was all about and where it existed and how long it's existed and the fact that it still exists. New report came out. They found there are 115 countries in the world. That's 60% of all the countries that have a high risk of people being enslaved. 
there are 46 million people living as slaves right now. Now, slaves is a big term. Slavery includes uh, forced labor, sex trafficking, forced marriages, other different human trafficking things, right? So 46 million people. Now, why is this important? Because again, Americans are so deceived. Again, kids think that slavery is a uniquely American invention. They think we are the only people who have ever had slaves. That is absurd. There were 12 million Africans shipped from Africa to the New World. 12 million. Only 400,000 of them were sent to America. It's about 4%. 5 million went to Brazil alone. The rest of the Caribbean. So America was a small part of the Africa to New World slave trade. And we certainly didn't invent slavery. Ask the Jews. But even still today, people use slavery as an excuse for their own failures or their own disappointments in life or whatever. And it can't possibly be true. Can't possibly. And if you ever come across someone who does, I would suggest to them that do you know there are 46 million slaves in the world right now? Okay, so let's join forces and fight against that. You think your life is worse because your great, 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 great grandfather was a slave? There are slaves today. So I think their life's pretty bad. I think your life comparatively is pretty good. So let's try to figure out how to help those people who are currently slaves. Not, And let's just think about more than yourself who is, you know, whatever, how many generations removed from slavery. Okay, so let's be the Harriet Tubmans of today. So if you think you're a victim of slavery today in America, you most certainly are not. But make it your cause and your mission for another person or so that another person in this this world doesn't have to be a slave. Or I suppose you can just complain about a distant relative of yours who was a slave and that's why you can't get a job today. Which is insane, but You figure out what's going to be better for your life, I guess. Who am I to say? I guess this ties back to the opening segment of the show about significance and how everyone has a desire to be significant. But if you don't have a proper role model and a proper uh, structure around you, then you will misdirect that aim, right? You want to be significant, but... You know, if Jonas Salk wanted to be significant, so he invented the polio vaccine. Black Lives Matter protesters want to be significant, so they burn down buildings. But I think it's both driven by a desire to be significant. Now, if you want to be significant, I think doing whatever you can to stop the slave trade in the modern world is a pretty good place to start. But we don't even have to go around the world. I mean, just focus here in America on people who are truly struggling. This is what's weird, and this is probably going to get me in trouble. How much time do I have? I've got a couple minutes here. This will get me in trouble. Um, so Black Lives Matter protesters, I guess, have been protesting around Graceland because it's Elvis week, anniversary of Elvis's death. So they've been shutting down Graceland and stuff. And, and I think, gosh, if, if you really have a chip on your shoulder, wouldn't you want to prove everything everyone wrong? I mean, if if you really feel that the white man's keeping you down, which is what their whole thing is, 
wouldn't you want to expe- exe- uh, succeed in spite of us? Right? If you really feel like you're being kept down, the last thing you would ask for is help from the people who are keeping you down, right? I mean, even if the government offered you money to help, wouldn't you say, no, we don't need it. We don't want it. We'll succeed without your pity and without your charity. Thank you very much. If you really felt like we lived in a horrible racist country, wouldn't you want the inner cities to be the safest places, the most prosperous places in the country, the places where everyone wanted to be? Wouldn't you want to create a culture where everyone aspired to grow up in black neighborhoods one day and work at a business owned by a black man or whatever? Wouldn't you want your kids to grow up and, and, and say, one day, I want to be wealthy enough to live in the black neighborhood? Don't you want the inner city schools to be the best schools in the country? Known for discipline and and academic and athletic achievement? What's going on? Why wouldn't you want that? There's something going on here because black people in our history have overcome the, the worst possible treatment, the worst imaginable. And they overcame and now we're left with this. We're left with what's going on in Milwaukee. Riots and all the rest. What, 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 the, what the heck? Gosh, you think people, uh, black leaders would say, listen, guys, this this is not this is not good enough. We, we need to do way better than this. I want to make an argument next. There's a, a new documentary. It was actually out in 2014, but it's new to Netflix. So everyone can watch it for free if you have Netflix. Uh, it's called Poverty, Inc. And they make an argument that foreign aid is destroying Africa. And I think there's a one-to-one ratio between foreign aid to Africa and welfare to Americans. It's an amazing documentary. Please watch it. We'll chat about it next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, let's go to the phones. Daniel is in uh, Missouri. What's going on, Daniel? How are you today? Hey, Mike. How you doing, sir? Good talking to you, my man. What's on your mind? Well, I chimed into your program while you're speaking on this race issue. Everybody thinks everything is racist nowadays. And, you know, so I'm sitting in a truck stop the other day. I'm 46. Talking to a younger black guy. He's probably, I, I don't know, 31, 32. And he's you know, talking about slavery and oppression and white privilege and all this. And I said, let me, let me ask you a question. He says, okay. So I asked him, how many races are on this planet? He says, man, I don't know. You got Cuban, Puerto Rican, Irish, English, French. I said, no, 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 no. That's not what I asked you. I asked you how many races are on this planet. He says, I don't understand the question. I said, well, what you described is ethnicity, nationality, color mm-hmm. of skin does not make a race. That makes a creed, a nationality, an ethnicity. I said, there's only one race. It's the human race. So for you to call someone racist means that they hate the entire population of the earth as far as human beings go, including themselves. I said, it makes no sense. <laughs> 
I understand there's bigotry in the world, but people are taking mm. racism out of context. Mm. It, it really has no bearing to me. I, I don't see color in people. I, I see you're either a piece of junk or you actually have some validity walking around and using up oxygen that other people might be <laughs> uh, that, and that can go with any any skin color that that is uh exactly. does not exactly. matter what did what did uh, this what did this guy think about that well he, he kind of looked off into space for a minute and pondered it and said you know what i never thought of it that way mm. i never looked at it that way because i wasn't brought up to look at it that yes. way and I, that's where all of this stems from is it starts at home if 100%. parents are not teaching their children, and this didn't just start with this generation. This has been going on since the beginning of time. But now that we know this and we have things to look back on, isn't it time we, we put an end to it and do a 180 turn and say, look, I'm not going to teach my children this way. This is how I'm going to bring them up. Perfect. You know, it's, it's time for everyone on the planet to open their eyes, except for, you know, certain certain groups of people we're not ever going to break through to because they follow a book that's fanatical and yeah, yeah, they just want to kill Yeah, you can't spread yeah, that to you, everyone. Yeah, Daniel, yeah, man, that's, them, that's that's perfect, brother. I love that. Can I ask you, you said you're a trucker? Yes, sir. What do you, uh, what do you got in the back of the truck today? Uh, I pull a flatbed, actually, and I have... A whopping 660-pound piece of boom section for a concrete pumping truck. Wow, that's awesome! So I that's from it. from, from where to where? One section of boom is coming out of uh, Pennsylvania, going down to Irving, Texas. Wow, that's awesome, sweet Daniel. Thanks for uh, keeping our country moving, man. I appreciate you moving that uh, that piece of equipment. That's awesome. Got to if, if you bought it, a truck brought it. That, that's exactly right, brother. Man, I appreciate that. Thanks for your job. Thanks for your call, Daniel. Thank you. Appreciate you, man. I love that. I love talking to truckers. I used to have a show on SiriusXM, and there are a lot of truckers listening to SiriusXM. Uh, so I'd always ask them what's in the back of the truck, and it's always something cool. And and as Daniel just said, if you buy anything, it was brought there by a trucker. They truly keep this country moving. It's unbelievable. I don't know how things get anywhere. Think about that. This 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 piece of equipment for a cement truck. It was in it was in Pennsylvania. But someone needs it in Texas. How's it going to get there? Daniel in Missouri. <laughs> that's how. Isn't that awesome? I love that. And that's happening all the time. Things moving around like that. And, and it's, it's stunning to me. I, I don't, it blows my mind. It really does. If there's a target near our house. I don't know how the things get there. How do the things get inside the target? Where do they come from? Where, where, like, that you would think there were trucks every five minutes pulling up inside of every Target everywhere and every store. I don't know how it works. Daniel, man, thanks for, uh, as I said, moving the uh, keeping this country moving. It's good stuff. All right, got a few more minutes here. I want to play this clip here from, this is the trailer of this uh, documentary called Poverty, Inc. It came out two years ago, but it's new on Netflix. So you can... Uh, can watch it if you have uh, if you have that, and you can pay for it. it's a couple bucks on you know YouTube and other places too. Uh, here is the trailer. Enjoy. Machiavelli said, "The reason there will be no change is because the people who stand to lose from change have all the power, and the people who stand to gain from change have none of the power." That's describing the global aid system today. 
I'm glad people want to help. It comes from a good heart. People give us food, they dig us wells, they bring us shoes, and they encourage others to give. We're going to make poverty issue. The problem is, it does not work. The foreign aid amounted to a huge subsidy, hundreds of millions of dollars. Tom Shoes found the right model that capture this love of people who want to be generous and helpful. Our donations have an unpredictable impact on the local economy. Why would you go buy something? It's for free. What happened to our cotton farms? That's all gone because of the negative impact of the imports at a second-hand level. We rich countries that produce a lot of foods and sell it to poor countries, it has not worked. It actually created more poverty. We don't need one more celebrity doing one more campaign. What we need is to no longer be excluded. No one wants to be a beggar for life. Emergency disaster relief has become the permanent model. After 40 years, if you're still here, there's a problem. I know about countries that developed on trade and innovation and business. I don't know of any country that got so much aid that it suddenly became a first world country. If you really want to help the poverty industry as we know it, it has to go. The sooner we tell a beautiful story about the African entrepreneur doing amazing work, then we will begin to shift mindsets. Her kids were in a horrible situation, but she started to work. And within three months, she had ten employees of her own. When you do something, you can see the impact on the population, and you can say, this is because of me. Having a heart for the poor isn't hard, but having a mind for the poor, that's the challenge. Mmm, it's awesome. It's awesome. Poverty, Inc. is the movie. Go watch it. Now, when you watch it, enjoy it for its own sake, right? The topic, that hand, and that is that foreign aid is uh, hurting the people of Africa. As you heard there, if uh, if emergency disaster relief is here 40 years later, you're doing something wrong. But think in the back of your mind as you're watching it that I believe it's a one-to-one analogy. With foreign aid is hurting people of Africa and poverty and uh, welfare in America is hurting people in America in the sense that giving away free stuff is not a solution. I mean, th- think about like when the guy says emergency, dis- think about this. There's an earthquake wherever 40 years ago in, in Africa, whatever problem, poverty, 40, whatever an emergency disaster relief comes in and they're there for 40 years. You're doing it wrong. Because there's nothing about the people of Africa that means about them that makes them inherently like they have to live in poverty forever. Like that's insane. There's no reason why the people of Africa should not be living prosperous, thriving lives like people in America. Well, they don't, I mean, other than they don't have property rights and they have corrupt governments and they have no rule of law and all these things that we know lead to prosperity, capitalism, free markets, et cetera. They don't have these things, but there's nothing about a person in Africa that makes them inherently different than someone in America. It's the system they live in and live under. And they want out, but we keep giving them free stuff and it's keeping them poor. Why would someone become a farmer in Africa and sell their food for a couple of dollars when we just give them food for free? Why would someone start a factory making clothes when we just give them clothes for free, we're undercutting whatever they need to, to grow out of poverty. We're impoverishing them by giving them free stuff. 
And the same is true for welfare. You get the connection. You know, welfare was pitched as emergency disaster relief. I think we should call welfare emergency disaster relief. I don't think we should call it welfare anymore. It should be called emergency disaster relief because today welfare is a norm. It's a way of life. It's generational. Same thing. Something's wrong. If you're on welfare for your whole life, something is wrong. We need to solve that. That's what this guy in Africa is saying. He said, we're on emergency disaster relief for 40 years. Something's wrong here. We got to get to the bottom of this because I don't want to be on emergency disaster relief. No one wants to be a beggar for life, that man in Africa said. Why doesn't it change? In Africa, same thing with here, welfare in America. A lot of people have a lot to lose. And I don't mean the recipients, the people in power. Politicians who get credit for, for welfare. Bureaucrats who get a job giving out welfare. These people have a lot to lose. Now in the process, they destroy families and ruin people's self-esteem and, and destroy potential. But they get high-paying and cushy and powerful and prestigious jobs. That's why they don't want to let go of it. And I love the, the, the heart of this documentary because it says, and the people of Africa are saying, listen, we appreciate the compassion. Right? We, we love your heart. But it's hurting us. And it's the same with progressives today. You have progressive leaders and progressive followers. And I'm speaking to progressive followers here. People who are like, oh, I want to help people, more welfare, without really thinking about it. I love your compassion. I love where your heart's at. But if you think about it for a second with me, you'll see that you're hurting people. You're destroying families. You're ruining communities. You're creating generations of dependency, generations of kids who know no different, who are going to grow up and raise their kids to expect things to be handed to them just the same. As we talked about second segment of the show, or I think it was the second or third segment of the show, um, you're feeding kids breakfast and you're robbing that from, from parents. You're, you're sending this horrible message that parents aren't responsible for, for feeding their kids breakfast. That's horrible. You're doing, I love the heart because you don't want kids to be hungry. But if parents aren't feeding their kids breakfast, there's probably some other problems going on there that we should deal with long-term. Poverty Inc. We have to totally change the model of foreign aid to Africa and welfare to Americans. And one last point, I talked to the director the other day of this movie. And he said, for whatever reason, people in the West look at people in Africa as objects. Objects to shower with pity. Objects to socially engineer to our vision. And that's wrong. And I think we do that with poor people in America too. We look at them as objects, objects that, and I think the director put it something like, instead of, or we look at them as objects to pity as opposed to protagonists with their own story to tell and their own lives to live. And that's a really destructive way to look at your fellow human beings as objects. one 888 The movie's Poverty, Inc. Go watch it straight away. Mike Slater, show the blaze radio network. Spread the word. 
You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Hope you have a great rest of your weekend. I'll uh, end the show here with a quote I came across this week from Seneca. Uh, I actually have two written down here. Hmm, what should I do? Uh, Let's do... We'll do this one. He says, Just as at a time of an epidemic disease... We must take care not to sit beside people whose bodies are infected with the disease because we shall risk ourselves and suffer from their breathing upon us. Makes sense, right? So a bunch of sick people, you don't want to sit next to them. So in choosing our friends for their character, we shall take care to find those who are the least corrupted. Mixing the sound, the healthy, mixing the healthy with the sick is how disease starts. So you have Seneca there a thousand years ago, a couple thousand years ago, talking about uh, surrounding yourself with the right people. Have you heard before that you're the average of the five people that you surround yourself with the most? I think that's true. Th- think of that, the five people you spend the most time with. Now, it's not the five people you wish you spent the most time with. It's who you actually do spend the most time with. So it's probably coworkers in that list. So you're the average of those five people, whether you like it or not. Well, I mean, you can change it if you don't like it, but most people don't. So whatever their attitude is, their dreams, whether they exist or not, their values, whether they're meaningful or not, their love for other people, existent or not, you are the average of that. So we have this theme of of the show today talking about family and education. It's the theme of every show in one way or the other. And if you come from a broken family, you're going to fall into some traps, And if you go to a school where teachers don't care and where it's just complete lawlessness and chaos, it's really easy to get sucked in. And the only antidote to that is a strong role model, a mentor, someone who can provide a positive vision for your life. Now, you may have that person. There's a lot of people who don't. I guess I'll end the show with a plug for volunteering for Boys and Girls Club or... uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, something like that. Because that's a solution. It's not a government program. It's got to be done one-on-one. It's the only meaningful way. Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Spread the word. See you next week. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.